Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. And Moss Rogers, thank you so much for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. I am really looking forward to our time together. I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to do this. Um, I'm super excited to talk with you about your blog and your books and your life. Um, like we talked about before we hit record, everyone has a story and our passion is to help them tell it. And what we know is when you tell your story to our listeners, they're going to connect with you. It could be your favorite subject in high school. It could be something that happened in your childhood, but they'll find something that they connect with you about and it'll inspire and motivate them to do things that they've been putting off. And it may be starting a blog. It may be, you know, writing a book. It may be, you know, calling their their mother and telling her that they love her, you know, that kind of thing, right? It, yeah. But we're all about inspiring and motivating. And I cannot thank you enough for being a part of this journey with us. Well, thank you so much. I love that you also focus on that kind of connection and belonging um, of making people feel like they're not alone. and. Yeah you know, a part of something. And I think that's really lovely and probably, you know, a good part of your success thus far. Because I think that you've definitely gotten a lot of success with just what, 90 episodes uh, as of this recording? We're just over 100. Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, that's good to get as many reviews as, as you've got with so few episodes. Yeah. And I know and it, that's not few to you. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, it's starting to, it's starting to feel that way. Cause I mean, we have five interviews today, right? Yeah. We have 19 this week. We'll do over 50 this month. Um, wow. And having a hundred episodes of doing 50 in, in one month is kind of crazy. We had two over 200 requests last week to be on this podcast. Oh, wow. I feel really honored. Now. Isn't that amazing? I, I'm, yes. I was blown away, completely blown away. And I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure how I was going to sleep at night, to be honest with you, um, right. because it's energizing, right? It's like all of a sudden people are coming out of the woodwork to, to want to be a part of our, of our program. And it's, it's validating and it's super exciting you know so well, pe people want to hear stories right yeah. i mean and they want to hear stories other than the really depressing stories we're getting yeah. now whereas part of my story is depressing but but part of it's not but you're so. victorious because of it and i think that's a big big deal you know it's and one of the things we talk about a lot and we've talked about it three times already today is if you look hard enough at any situation, it doesn't matter what it is, and it could be the most painful thing, like, like what happened with your son, could be the most painful thing that's ever happened to you in your life. But if you look hard enough, you'll find a positive. You'll find something, right? 
that you can sort of hang your hat on or you can hang your hopes on and 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 go forward from there, right? And to your credit, you pivoted and went out and did something positive that now is helping thousands and thousands of people. That's a big deal. That's a bigger deal than most people realize, right? Because you could have, you could have just decided to recess into your own world and not reach out and not make a contribution, right? I mean, I'm so proud of you, I'm about to bust. So thank you. (laughs) I really am. I mean, you can't, I don't know anybody that has a heart that can't read your situation and not be proud of you. It's, it's, it's not possible. And going what you, you know, having gone what you, what you've gone through to, to do what you've done is just amazing. Absolutely amazing. So I can't, I can't wait to have your, your life story on tape. So let's do this With, with your permission. Let's start with where you were born. We'll go up to today and we'll talk about anything else that you're working on currently and anything that, that you're working on for tomorrow too, okay? Okay, that sounds good. So um, where were you I'm born? Originally from mm-hmm. Fayetteville, North Carolina. Really? Okay. Home of the 82nd Airborne. Uh, my father was not in the military, but my grandfather was the treasurer of Cumberland County and... Um, they built a house there uh, in 1929, mm-hmm. and I just sold my ancestral home this year, which was really very hard to yeah. do. Um, but I, I don't need another house in Fayetteville, so you know, I, I decided that you know we need to let the next generation and enjoy, you know, a, a beautiful neighborhood and. Um, So I grew up there. Then when I was 12, we moved and lived in Medford, New Jersey for a little bit. I broke my neck there. um, So I had a pretty serious accident. Fortunately, I was not paralyzed, but just by like the width of a hair. We would move and uh, live in Alabama for a year, Montgomery. I'm going to tell you. I didn't love Montgomery, Alabama in the 1970s. <laughs> and then we moved back to Fayetteville when I was a teenager. And I went back and saw all my old friends. And I ended up going to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Wow. And I graduated um, with a bachelor's in journalism with a concentration in advertising and marketing. Um I'm not even going to tell you what year. That's okay. We don't have to talk about years. We're good. We're good. You started college when you were five. I got it. I got it. We're good. (laughs) It was a while ago, but um, I was there when Michael Jordan was there. So you're a Tar Heel. I am a Tar Heel and I am a huge Carolina basketball fan. I love that. I love that. Michael Jordan will do that to you. He'll make you a fan, right? He'll make you a Wizards fan, right? Really, we're a Michael Jordan fan, but we're going to follow him. (laughs) I was a fan long before that. I mean, I was cheering them on, uh, you know, five years old. That was our family gathering. We would all watch the game together when the games would come on television. I love it. That's cool. So where did you graduate? You graduated in Fansville um, High School? 
Uh, graduated from Terry Sanford High School, went to UNC, and after UNC, I moved to Richmond, Virginia to move uh, to work eventually at the Martin Agency, which is an advertising agency. Gotcha. So when you were growing up, who was the most influential person to you growing up? Wow. Uh, gosh, I'd have to say... Do you mean a famous person or somebody no, in my town? No, just influential to you. So like, for instance, my the most influential person to me growing up by far, by a mile, was my grandfather, my mother's father, uh, my maternal grandfather. I'd say there were two people that, that were major influences on me. And one was my um, Catherine Nimmox, who was my aunt. Okay. And the second was my theater teacher, Ben Thorpe. Okay. I uh, loved, you know, I took theater for at least a dozen years and grew up on stage. And it's why I speak now, right. because I'm very comfortable on stage because I did my 10,000 hours, right? Yeah. Um, plays and all of it was live back then. I mean, nothing was taped. And these days, you know, when I do go do a live interview and they're like, you know, this is live. I'm like, I'm okay with it. That's where I started, you know. We're going to be okay, yeah. Right. It, it might not be perfect, but, you know, I'm used to that and that's all right. That's a, that's a good training ground. Yeah, it is. So I'd say things, those... One ahead. of the things that's feared more than death in the United States is public speaking. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And I will say also that I was really influenced a lot by Dean Smith, the mm -hmm. uh, basketball coach. Yeah. He was one of the first to integrate his team. And he just wasn't afraid about being bold. Yeah. And, you know, putting himself out there in situations that weren't popular or highly stigmatized. And I really admired that. And I'd Isn't say that, that has, yeah, yeah, it is. That, that had a lot of influence on my life. So think about this. Dean Smith is, was a high-profile, national champion-winning basketball coach. How many thousands of people did he inspire, including you? Right. Just, just by being himself, right? Just by being bold, just by not asking permission, right? He asked for forgiveness, I'm sure, but he didn't ask for permission. He just went out and did it. He did. And... That fearlessness is something that I really admired. And I, because I was a lot like that. And as a woman, people try to kind of, back then would kind of try to push you down and say, right. you didn't have permission. I'd like, well, yeah, I do. And this is going to be unpopular, but I'm doing it anyway. Right. Good for you. Good for you. So, so you go to school, you get your degree at UNC from what what was your degree uh journalism with a concentration in marketing and copywriting okay so i was copywriter at an ad agency which means i wrote ads tv radio print i made i made up ads gotcha <laughs> quick question let's go back just a second i forgot to ask you what was your favorite subject in high school oh english easily right oh yeah and then i love being on the yearbook staff um I, I love being on the yearbook staff and I love being on the track team and I wasn't a good 
worked. I wasn't a track star. I wasn't really very good at track at all, but I love the team camaraderie. I like the fact that I got, it was a more diverse group. Right. So I was kind of exposed. I had friends kind of out of my usual friend group that I created on the track team. And I really liked that. I really embrace change and diversity. I've always liked that. Mm-hmm. I love hearing other points of view, other, you know, learning about other cultures. I'm really fascinated by that. Oh, so, wow. you know, it started to kind of help me take a step into that and then college once it started to present those opportunities where i can meet all people from all over the world i was fascinated by that and i made friends easily because i asked a lot of questions and people like to to talk about stuff like that you know they knew i was really interested and people love it when you're interested yeah and they love talking about themselves that's true they do right you ask Mm -hmm. them about themselves you give them permission to tell you their story and they will and they enjoy it and you bond right right and i think i've become a better listener over the years but i started to develop that with that insatiable curiosity so i have that lifetime insatiable curiosity that i think keeps me young you know i'm with you so let me ask you a question so you get into marketing right right work in richmond you said right right and what was your favorite thing about being in marketing oh i love working with the people I love presenting the ideas when you came up with them. I love seeing them produced. Back then you would get the slicks, Mm -hmm. you know, once they were produced, you didn't get them digitally. That was always like, wow, you know, the result of my work or the commercial on TV. That was just, that was just a lot of fun. But I really liked working with a team and a group. I think that connection piece was probably the most fun um you know having the friends at work and and also when you would get that relationship we worked in pairs at the time a copywriter and an art director and so you would work with another individual on campaigns um and then there would always be um an account executive and some teams you would put together would be just like magic you know and Mm -hmm. it's like just you just worked so beautifully together and to find that kind of chemistry was such an awesome thing to experience and i'm just really absolutely thrilled to have had that yeah so how long were you in marketing Mm, over 25 years so it would evolve into digital marketing i would um own a digital marketing firm I ended up leaving an agency when I got pregnant and I started freelancing. So when they were little and up until my youngest got into middle school, I um, freelanced and then I started a digital marketing firm in uh, 2010 uh, with a business partner. Okay. Because that's the way the world was going, digital yeah. marketing. So I was 
good at content marketing, at search engine optimization. I, I got all that. I wasn't afraid of the tech. I wasn't afraid of computers. Sounds like you're not afraid of much. I I am not afraid of much. You're right. I'm not have a little arachnophobia but i've worked on it and i'm yeah. better than i used to be <laughs> yeah we have we have a bout of arachnophobia around here too everything Do stops really? when there everything stops when there's a spider everything everything right? well now i am better but they still <laughs> freak me out but it used to be i would stand on a chair and somebody would have to come kill it or that, i would that's, never yeah. move it. Yeah. that's my that's my reality <laughs> dad <laughs> right <laughs> right <laughs> so, yeah. so so you so how long were you in digital marketing um oh god from 1995 and i sold my digital marketing business in 2007 2018 2017 or 18 i can't right. remember which well, i think it was there. 2000 yeah i can't remember which but um so as soon as there was a little blinking dot on a computer called the internet. I was sucked in because I spent so much time at the library researching and now I could like, you know, and I had to find a babysitter mm -hmm. and in order to go to the library and then I had to go home and then I didn't have enough dimes to the Xerox machine. All that went away. Yeah. And as soon as I, you know, some little geeky guy showed me what the internet was and it was just black and white mm -hmm. before it had graphics, yeah. but it was a great research tool I and I could that. type it in. I'm like, oh my gosh, I yeah. get all the information I'm looking for. Yeah. And that I had it installed in 1995 and not, yeah. and so many people didn't even know what it was. Yeah. The whole world opened up for you. It sounds like. It did. So owning that owning that firm for 12 years, what was your favorite thing about owning that? I think a lot of it was the autonomy. What I didn't like was that financial part, but that's where my business partner came in handy. So right. I you know, before I actually moved merged with him and I was a freelancer. You know, I would bring teams together kind of like a manager and right. be the account executive. And I had all those roles to play. That gave me a really good bird's eye view uh, and appreciation of all the roles. Right. Probably more than I had appreciation than I had, had before. Right. And, but there's also all the responsibility on you too, you know. I'm not working. I don't make money. Right. And, but I had two jobs. I was taking care of my children. And at first that was the primary focus and it was kind of a side gig. And then my side gig started to become more of a major focus. But the point was I wanted, when my kids got off the bus, I wanted to be there. Yeah. And I would never say to somebody, well, it's, you know, you need to do that or you don't need to do that. But for me, given my situation, those memories I have with my son, you know, I, I, I wouldn't trade them for the world because that's all I got now. Yeah. So let's talk about 
what's a really difficult subject, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about what happened in 2015. So uh, I had two, I raised two sons. Mm -hmm. Richard is my oldest child. He lives in LA and he is um, an editor, has his own YouTube channel. And then my youngest, uh, younger son's name was Charles. Okay. Very, very creative. Most popular kid in school, always. I mean, everyone loved him. When he walked in, you know, all faces turned toward him like he had sunshine in his pocket and he was there to hand it out. Quirky, different. And then I realized he's a creative genius mm -hmm. and all the little quirks and weird stuff that go along with that. Yeah. And he questioned everything. <laughs> So he could be kind of exhausting at the same time. Also very demanding. Always wanted to have people over constantly at the house. And I would find out later why. And I'll, I'll tell you when we get to that part. Um, it was around high school when Charles, my younger child, started to struggle more. We had noticed some issues earlier. I had brought them up. I'd gotten rebuffed. I didn't give up when I got rebuffed, but there weren't a lot of resources. And right. they were mental health issues like anxiety. And he, just, and he didn't love school. And even though he was brilliant, he didn't love school. He didn't like the worksheets and the rote memorizations. He loved English. He loved acting. At, but around high school, he started to change. And... I couldn't figure out really what it was. And then he got elected to be on homecoming court as a sophomore, which is pretty rare. Yeah. And my older son gets chosen that year too, which was also very rare because Richard was a strong introvert, but he had done this big film series thing. And so he became well-known for that. Richard's my senior. He actually won that year. Charles is being escorted by his favorite teacher, Carrie Fretwell, who is the theater teacher. And I remember being on that field and thinking as everybody was looking down on that field that they thought, must have thought, man, that, that family's got it all. Look, she's got two children, so popular on the, on the homecoming court. Things are going great for that family and they wouldn't know it was complete and utter chaos. Because Charles had started to abuse or misuse drugs and alcohol. Hmm. And we had talked about this and I didn't know what was going on or why. And what I would find out later is that he was numbing thoughts of suicide. Oh my goodness. And he would eventually start to use so many drugs and alcohol that we were afraid for his life. He started taking like incredible risks hmm. and we would find out later that is a symptom of depression is taking those risks yeah. so we had him kidnapped out of his bed and took him to uh, uh basically in the wilderness mm -hmm. um which is kind of a therapeutic setting after that he would go to a therapeutic boarding school he came back in 2014 about 
having spent about 22 months outside our home in some kind of placement. Mm -hmm. And then during that year, which I didn't know, he became addicted to heroin. Oh and he was selling my silverware, uh, my family's silverware. And, you know, it's not something we use. We, you know, you, we use it at Thanksgiving and Christmas. So you don't miss so it? We didn't, no, didn't yeah. notice it. Uh, and by the time I did, you know, I had one spoon left. And he would eventually confess to being addicted to heroin. And long story short, he'd, he'd do the detox and the rehab. Uh, he would relapse and then he would call me and I'm like, where are you? We had a phone call. We had several phone calls that day. And he took his life that night. And I, I didn't know it like early in the morning. And we would be notified the next day that my son killed himself. Hmm. And I was so shocked because I thought, I thought Charles loved life. Yeah. I thought that's why he had surrounded himself with friends all the time. And what I would find out is he surrounded himself with friends all the time because he was afraid of what he would do to himself at night. Oh my gosh because he struggled so much and that's why he did drugs and alcohol to numb those feelings of suicide because in that moment it's a bad coping strategy right yeah. but to him it worked you know yeah. and of course that's what added to his demise in the end yeah. so at first you're just like underwater emotionally you don't want to get out of bed. You've got to take a shower. You have to eat. You have to do normal life things. And you don't want to do any of that because yeah. it's all so hard. I mean, I remember it was about two years struggling just to get out of bed in the morning. I had to have a regimen of, Amos, just put your feet on the floor. That's all you have to do. I right. told myself that every morning for two years so I could get out of bed. And then after that, I'd just give myself the next step. Because right at first, I, the couple of, there was one time I couldn't keep into everything in order and I had to do it slowly one step at a time because one morning I rushed it, ended up getting in the shower, but I hadn't taken off my pajamas or my slippers. <laughs> so I'm standing in the shower with my clothes on and I'm like I forgot to take my clothes off and I just felt like really low at that point you know like I've got I've got to get some kind of system down and that's when I did the just put your feet on the floor in one step because it was it really was like being emotionally underwater and it kind of ebbs and flows but I do remember right after it happened and we came home, <clears throat> the police told us at the restaurant where we had dinner one night, they found us and they pulled us in the parking lot. And when we came home and we collapsed on the floor, I remember thinking, I, I can't do this. I, I don't know what it looks like. 
I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then it was like, yeah, you are going to do this. Other people have done it. And as bad as it is right now, and it was brutal, it'll never be as bad as getting the news that part is over and it will never, ever hurt that much again. So I was like, I don't want to wake up tomorrow. I didn't want to kill myself, but I just didn't want to wake up and face it all. And that's what I kept telling myself is as much as it will hurt tomorrow, it'll never hurt as much as getting the news. And I just, that was my mantra for a very long time. And I would develop kind of a list of mantras to help me through the grief episode. Um, Like you can do this, Amal. You can do this. It won't last forever. It will lift. And when it lifts, you can distract yourself. So I felt the feelings. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people, they say it's too painful and they want to push it away. But what I want everyone to know is when you do that avoidance thing, you numb it with drugs or alcohol or food or gambling, you end up numbing it in a way that keeps you in that raw, ugly place longer than you need to be. You don't advance. Right. Right. Actually deciding to feel the feelings, which the intense part lasts 60 to 90 seconds. Yes, it takes you to the floor. Yes, you curl up into the ball. Yes, you kick the wall, scream, shout. You know, it, it's hard. Mm-hmm. But then that feeling of when it lifts, you're just like, oh, just when I couldn't take it any longer. Oh. That I noticed that rhythm of how long it lasts and that it would lift. And I noticed progress and I started writing. I was really struggling and the writing helped me process all of that. And I started writing in public and I thought, you know, people are gonna think I'm trying to ask for pity. But, you know, I just didn't worry about it. I just kept writing. And I wrote a newspaper article, and that went viral. And then all of a sudden, I had this platform. And I had people listening. And I felt this sense of responsibility. But I didn't go out there and do what I'm doing now to really help people. It was to help myself at first. So it was a self-care step. Yeah, you were just working through it, right? It was was the process and you were going through the process. But the beautiful thing that happened was that other people that had been through something similar started to connect with me. And it felt like that connection was important. Yeah. My friends didn't really know exactly what to do. So they weren't as active in my life as I would have liked for them to to be. They, you know, they had a lot of fear around mm-hmm. them. Nobody wanted to talk about Charles. And that's pretty much all I wanted to talk about. Right. But I didn't need to sit with my friends and talk about it exhaustively for an hour. It'd be like three to five minutes because I didn't want you to glaze over them and erase them from my family tree. Right, right. You know, as long as I had that acknowledgement, 
I could move on to another subject and chat about something else. His life was but significant. If, His life right. was significant. And that's what you needed to make sure people understood, right? Is, exactly. this is you know, he's, yes, he's passed away, right? But his memory's not gone. And he he lived a significant life. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, every bereaved parent, our greatest fear is that you are going to forget our, our child. Right. So when you say something to us, like 10 years later, we're still visiting the cemetery and you're making a criticism about that. What does it matter to you? If that mm. is what is helping me support my grief, which I will live with for the rest of my life. Right. That's okay. There yeah. is nothing wrong with that. That is a natural reaction to losing someone you love. And there is nothing wrong with going to see their grave or talking about them 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. Yeah. You know, and people act like there's something wrong with somebody. And a lot of times they they want the way you were before and they haven't adapted to the to how you've changed. Right. And a lot of times I find that those of us who are bereaved are having to educate those who are not. It's unfortunate that that's the way it is, but it, it is the way it is. And I don't mind telling people that. Yeah. Well, it's what you're doing, though, by sharing with them, you're equipping them. Okay. They, they're coming into this thing and they're not sure what to say. They're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing, right? So the thing that you dealt with with your friends was they didn't know what to say and they were scared to death they were going to say the wrong thing, right? Like right. they were going to sound, they were going to sound insensitive or they were going to sound the wrong way to you. And they knew, guaranteed, they knew that you were super sensitive at the time. You were vulnerable yeah. and you were going through these different stages, right? You were going through this process. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad from the bottom of my heart that you started writing. So I've talked to so many people that are authors, right? One gentleman a few days ago we had on our podcast wrote a book about his mom and it helped him tremendously to deal with the, the grief of losing his mother. He told his mother's story and honored her by doing that, right? You're honoring Charles every single day that your feet hit the floor. Yeah. And then on top of it, you're helping tens of thousands of people get equipped for what they may have to go through and you're helping them get equipped for anything their friends go through. You're also helping people that are going through the same kind of thing where they've lost somebody that they love, right? Like I have people in my family, my grandfather was the single, I think I told you, my grandfather was the single biggest influence in my life. Yeah. And I, every single day, use things that he taught me. Aww. And there are people in my life, in my family, that are very, very close to me that don't ever want to hear about him again and are constantly saying to me, why do you keep bringing him up? Why do you keep Why not? Him up? 
Right. Well, that's it. And, you know, to an extent, I mean, you didn't know my grandfather, obviously, but he was larger than life. Mm -hmm. And so was Charles, right? Yeah. Charles loved yeah. life. He, Charles was a magnet. People came to your house because, and, and he wanted them there because of the fears that he had, but he also was a magnet. He was somebody people wanted to be around. He had yeah. charisma, right? He and did, he yeah, popular. that comes in. Yeah, and people loved how he loved life. People that love life are a magnet, right? Yeah, and he was funny. I mean, yeah. I wanted to be around him too. I yeah. mean, you know, he, and oh my gosh, he always did the comedy for the for his audience. So what he told his friends, they would find funny that I might not. Right. But he always, you know, had different kind of humor for his mom. Yeah. And so he could adjust that. And yeah, that's a genius. That's a genius. Is. Okay. That's something that you're honoring every single day. Right? Yeah. Well, I put, I, he wrote all these rap songs. He was working, he was contracted due to his second album. And so I thought, I thought he would never leave this earth because of that. Right. And that was a gift to have all those lyrics after he died. And I put them in my first book, Diary of a Broken Mind. Yeah. Because you get our family life from my viewpoint and you get it from his. Yeah. And I wanted everyone to see that I made mistakes, but I also had successes and I owned up to those. Yeah, but also how he felt about himself, which I didn't know, and it gives everyone the insight of how their loved one feels if they're suicidal, if they are addicted to a substance. I had no idea he cared so much, and I mean, this was a kid where. He had one backpack when he died because he wasn't in the house at the time. And in that, he had a, a plastic bag of family photos. Mm -hmm. And it just shows you what was most precious to him in the world. Yeah. And he had those notebooks of his lyrics and he had a toothbrush. And you know, when you have all your belongings that are the most important to you in the world that you can put in one backpack. And part of that is pictures of your family. You know, you count. Yeah. You do know you count. I mean, I struggled a really, really long time with the coulda, woulda, shouldas, and it was my fault. Just like anybody who loses a child, but particularly when you lose a loved one to suicide, we struggle with that intentional piece that, that it was preventable. Why didn't we, you know, come in like Superman and notice the signs and rescue them? Well, you weren't equipped. No. And that's no. that's what's so amazing about what you're doing now because you are literally equipping people. You're you're giving them the tools that they need to be able to see this coming, to be able to head it off at the pass, if it's at all possible, right? Right. But, you there's no telling how many thousands of thousands of lives you saved there's no telling 
there, there's not. And every time I get to the point that I don't want to do this anymore, I quit. You know, it's, it's a tough space to be in. It is. That's usually when I get a note from someone that said, you know, five years ago, I wrote something on your YouTube video. You had a conversation with me. I decided to live. And here I am five years later and I'm doing great. And I'm like, wow. And how many people does that represent? I have no idea. But that one person found me five years later and for whatever reason, hunted me down and sent me that message. You saved their life. That's why they hunted me. And it's just, well, I helped them save their own life. Well, I'm with you. I'm with you. But if you hadn't helped them, they wouldn't be here. You know, it's really that someone listened to them. Yeah. And allowed them to feel. And I think a lot of us really don't know how to do that anymore. So it's yeah. not just listening to somebody. It is truly allowing them to feel like they've been heard. Yeah. Well, it's we talk about this a lot. So I'm sorry if it sounds like a broken record for, for our listeners. But there's a thing called active listening, right? And there's a thing called piggyback questions, Okay. And, you know, unfortunately today, what is considered conversation is you're talking and I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. Okay, that's a debate. I can tell you that because I was one of the top debaters in school in the nation. Okay, I was very good at arguing. I was one of the best. I would think about what they were saying, but I would be thinking about what I was going to say in, in in rebuttal to it. Okay, my argument. The thing is, we need to get back to a place where we hear each other. And we need to get back to a place to where the people that are that we're hearing know that we're hearing. And the way you do that is you ask piggyback questions. And the piggyback question is very simply a question about what you just said right? And what it does is it takes your conversation to a place to where that person understands and feels that you care. We call it caring enough to ask. Right. Right. That's where we need to get to. Okay. And I'm just crazy enough to think that I can have an impact with our little podcast on how people communicate. Oh, I love that. The feedback we're getting, the feedback we're getting from people is they're changing and improving the way that they communicate. And I, it just absolutely blows me away every single time that I, that I hear about that, because that's really what this is about. You're equipping people to deal with a loved one that's in crisis and you're, you're helping them to head that off to an extent and, and also to deal with the ramifications of it. We're all trying to help with tools, right? Right. And that's what this thing's about. All of us together, we're going to get there, right? We're going to mm-hmm. get there. I'm convinced of it. So let me ask you this. What made you write the book? It stalked me. It, it Explain that for it, me. What what does, I, what does it stalk me mean? 
it was writing in my head before he died. And before he died, it was kind of, I think, a place I needed to go to yeah. see this sort of hero. And he was going to be in recovery and he was going to be a star in recovery. And I think I needed that fantasy to be able to go through his addiction piece. Yeah. That one day we would be there. And then when he died, that story took a death and then this other story emerged and it kept writing itself in my head and I would you know I started with the blog because I really wasn't capable of tackling a whole book I could write a blog post and that served as sort of kind of an outline you know so that it's not a book of my blog posts but I could look back and see a timeline of of how things happen by looking at them. Gotcha. It's the Emotionally Naked blog, right? Right. So I have two blogs. One is Mental Health Awareness Education, and I have a lot of, you know, that's my speaking platform. Right. And then I have, a you know, like 3,000 blog posts on Emotionally Naked. Yeah. And they're kind of on one under one umbrella now. I, I wasn't going to lose that emotionally naked blog and yeah. three thousand blog posts because that that's my heart and soul, yeah. you know. And I learned through that process. It it helped me process it, and then I realized when I wrote the book, like at the fifth draft, his level of writing is up here. And mine was down here. You know, I was getting that first ugly draft. I'm like, I have to elevate my level of writing here. So I took one class, one editing class. And she said, if you have any of these cheat words and two of those on the list I had, I went home and had them in there like 300 times. (laughs) So I had to go and I said, I have to move. I can keep 10 of them. But the other 290 got to go. Right. So that was a lot of rewriting. And I felt like by the 11th draft, I had kind of upped the level, you know, to to his level of writing. And And that was an honor to him. That was an honor. It was. And I think it's very different from any other book because it is very emotionally naked. And it... It gets into how they feel and how I felt, but I didn't, a lot of books go to a really dark place and kind of leave you in the dumpster at the end. And even though obviously, you know, my son killed himself, I have hope and I had, you know, I I have been emotionally healing and I've learned to integrate this loss into my life and find moments of joy and how have I done that and so I wanted to include you know I wanted to include hope and healing and end on that message of hope and healing and because that was important to me because there are too many books that I read that oh this is a great book and I mean it just left me really really depressed when I finished it yeah that's awesome. That's awesome. And I want to add something to the to the listening. There's there's one thing I tell parents, and it's one of the most important things when I talk about 
ditching punitive parenting and becoming more of a wisdom guide. And point number one is listen more and lecture less. And I think as humans, not just as parents to children, we need to do that more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, the way I raised my children was the Socratic method. Ah, you ask questions. That's all I did. Yeah. That's all I did. So So, smart. Yeah. So one of the things that, um, one of the things that I did was my, my sister and I growing up just fought like cats and dogs. It was, it was awful. And it was so bad that we would go to my grand grandfather's house and my grandmother, we would sit at the table and we would bicker back and forth and it'd make my grandmother sick to her stomach. She'd get up and walk away and go in another room and leave a meal that she had cooked and not eat. And that never left me. That never left me. So I always knew I'd be a dad. And what I knew was my children were not going to do that. My children were not going to bicker. They were not going to argue. They were not going to act like these kids that have lost their minds in the restaurants and movie theaters and all like they were not going to do any of that. They were going to act correctly or they weren't going. And so I made it very clear. But what I did was I did it through questions. So when they would get into a disagreement, I would call them in, both of them. They'd come sit with me in whatever room I was in. And I would ask them this question, what's your job? And they already knew their job was to be nice. And they would say, be nice? Is what you just did to your sister or what you just did to your brother an example of being nice? No. Well, what should you do? Not do it again? What else? Say, say I'm sorry, right? And they'd, they'd apologize and they'd give each other a hug and they'd go on their way. But every single time that they even acted like they were going to get into a, into a disagreement, they were called in to sit with me. Fast forward, Michael's seven, Michael 17, Madison 16. Madison and Michael get into a thing. We're in a 3,000 square foot house, okay? They're upstairs in a room and I can hear them in an argument. All right, all right, you two, down here right now. So they come down and they sit down and we have the same exact questions that we had all their old time they were growing up. Two days later, I'm driving with Madison, who's getting her, her permit. So she has to drive a certain amount and practice. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. And she said, Dad? And I said, yeah. She said, you remember the other day when you called us down? And right, yeah. She said, we had already solved it, Dad. They learned how to resolve conflicts on their own. And right. it came from the questions that were asked. See, we are literally programmed from the minute we come out of the womb, we are literally programmed to answer questions. If you don't think so, take a newborn that's looking around, right? And ask them a question. They will stop and focus directly on you. They can't answer, but right. they'll directly at you, okay? Take a toddler, a two-born, a, a terrible twos, right? Take a two-year-old that's throwing a tantrum, go walk in front of them and get in their face and go, what's wrong? What happened? They'll stop. They'll forget what they were upset about. And they'll look at you and they want to answer. The whole idea behind the terrible twos is they want to tell you how they feel, but they don't know how. That's what that is. It's all a frustration, right? So when my children would do that when they were two years old, I would just pepper them with questions. And eventually they got to where they understood how to tell me how they felt. Terrible twos went away. 
We didn't yeah. have terrible twos the way most parents have. We didn't have issues with our children the way most parents do because they would come home and they would not feel good or they would come home and they would be upset or they would come home and they'd be in a state other than their peak state. And I would sit with them and I would ask them questions until they revealed to me exactly what happened and how they felt about it. They got it off their you chest. It was you head on and they moved on. Number two, ask more questions. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I, I tell parents that all the time. But listen. Don't lecture. Ask listen. more questions. Yeah, but listen, right. right? So I had a client of mine that I was sitting with one day and I was trying to talk him out of buying this property. It's a multi-million dollar property. And there were a lot of issues with it. And I was trying to talk him out of doing it. In the middle of the conversation, he just left me. Mentally just left me. Okay. And so I stopped and I said, Vince, what's going on? And he said, Mike, he goes, you know, our, our, our baby. And I said, yeah, he's, he's one. Right. And he said, yeah. He said, we're really worried. And I said, about what? And he goes, we haven't heard. He hasn't said a thing in two months. And I said, that's not, that's not the same kid. When I would call and he would answer the phone when he was driving and the kid was in the back in his car seat, that child would talk baby talk more than we talk normal talk. Okay, that baby wanted to be in that conversation. So I would have conversations with that baby over the speakerphone, right? Because he mm -hmm. wanted to be in the conversation. And so I'd ask him, right. questions and he'd answer me, not in what you would understand, but he'd answer me in baby talk. Okay, for two months, he hadn't said a thing. And so I asked him, I said, so what does he do when he wants something? He said, he points and he grunts. I said, you know what, I did the exact same thing. And the lady that was watching me had six sons. She was a neighbor, a farmer's wife and the next, next farm over, best friends with my, with my grandmother. She had six boys. She didn't have time for that. So I would have to tell her what I wanted for her to go get it. Pointing and grunting wouldn't work. Okay. And I said, so you got to ask him, ask him to tell you what it is before you, and he's going to cry. So get mama on board. Right. The other thing is when you go home ask him questions. He can't answer. But when you go home, don't talk to him. Ask him. Ask, ask him, him questions. questions. Okay. Three days later, I called him and I said, how are we doing? He said, well, we're not worried anymore. And I said, why is that? He said, we can't get him to shut up. There you go. All he needed, all he needed was somebody to care enough to ask, okay, which gave him permission to talk. That's all he needed. When you do that, you are giving them their power back. Absolutely. They they feel powerless, yeah. you know, as children. And if we're dictating everything, they don't have a say. They don't feel heard. They don't feel seen and they don't feel heard. This generation in particular doesn't feel seen and they don't feel heard. And we as parents can give our children that gift. Yeah. And, and if you listen makes, to what they're saying yes. and then ask them about what they just said, okay? So when they come home and they're in a rough place and they and you ask them, how was your day? And they say, awful. You say, okay, well, describe to me what awful is. How was your day awful? Right? Right. And then, then, then you shut up and you let those long stretches of silence because that's where the gold happens. That's you it. let them process it. Right, right. And they will. 
and they'll you'll you'll see the you can see the wheels turning right yeah, you can right and you'd get them to it and you just you just wait and then they and then they answer and when they answer listen to the answer because if the answer is again something general like oh it was just terrible okay well tell me what terrible was right, right? ask them about the specific. answer exactly yeah. ask them about the answer dig 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 and what will happen is you'll get somewhere where it's painful. That's true. It'll be emotional, but they'll work through it and they'll work through it with you. That's what you want. You don't want them working right. through it with somebody else. No. And you don't really want to give them advice. You just ask them more questions so that they arrive at the answer themselves. And it's not always the perfect answer. Yeah. You know, I mean, you just failed that test. I see that you're disappointed. What do you think you'd do differently next time? Yeah. And maybe they give you some crazy answer that really wouldn't help. Then what happens? They flunk that test. It is yeah. not going to ruin their whole life. Guess what? They're going to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> and it's their solution. That's the most important part. Yes. They can okay? own it. Yeah. 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 And they own, because they own it, they don't resent you for ordering them to do it, right? So when the right. kids were growing up, I never told them that they had to do anything except act correctly yeah. and be respectful, right? And respect authority. Everything else, they, if they decided they wanted to go into a sport, they knew what our standard was. They had to, they had to keep that standard, but they could go do whatever it was. They just had to give it everything they had, right? I never mm -hmm. told them that they had to do a single sport. I never told them they had to do a single extracurricular activity. I never told them they had to do a single thing. They were, they had complete carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to do. They just couldn't quit it, right? They had to see it through. Right, we had that same rule. Yeah, and so, it, it and it worked because they took ownership of their own life. Exactly, uh, we didn't dictate what they did it's like you tell me what you want to do we're on board with yeah. whatever it is and it yeah. with Charles it was a lot of interesting things yeah, yeah. and it was fun right it was fun Charles was, was one of the most entertaining people on the planet oh my gosh I still you know he did karate for a year and then he didn't want to do it anymore and I was okay with that but I, I love the little karate videos we have of him just there's a three-year-old <laughs> Yeah. yeah so my son takes taekwondo he does he goes to his black belt test we're all there the family's mm -hmm. there because he's taking his black belt test right well in your black belt test you have to take on multiple multiple opponents okay right and, and he's all suited up and he's got his head his head pad on and he's got his his uh, foot pads on and this is a kid that's six four right so he can reach up and smack you across the head with one of those long legs that size yeah. 14 foot right i mean this is right and so i'm watching him do this and it's kind of break time and they, they tell him to break and go get some water and he comes over and i hand him his water and i'm like michael michael let michael let me in dad dad calm down they're not going to let you in they're not going to let you fight i'm like come on like, get me in, get me in, dad. Calm down. You're embarrassing me. Because <laughs> it's, you know, uh, you spend your whole life protecting these children, 
right? Yeah. And now your son is in the middle of a fight with multiple opponents. Okay. Ooh. You can't make this up. And as a dad, it may, it, it got my adrenaline flowing. It got my, I mean, I was pumping, yeah. right? My veins I get were pumping it. out. I mean, I was right. I was ready to go, you know? And I'm like, get me in, get me in, dad. They won't let me in. Calm down. You're embarrassing me. <laughs> Yeah, I remember my older son, Richard, was an umpire. Both mine were umpires because he paid a lot. Yeah. So my older one is an umpire for like, you know, they were 10-year-olds. And I mean, those parents were into baseball. All all of them thought I have the next major leaguer. So my son makes a call. I can't tell you if it's a good call or bad call, but he makes a call. And I mean, this coach gets all over him. Mm-hmm. My son is six foot four. And with cleats on, he's taller than that. So yeah. his dad comes up and he's looking up at him, you know. And Richard was very thin, but with all that padding, he looked a lot bigger. Yeah. <laughs> he stood there. I'm sitting there watching the game. I want to leap out of the chair. I want to punch this guy in the face. Time, you know, just cuts him out. I sat there fastened to the seat. Don't move. Don't say anything. Let him handle it. To my credit, I didn't do anything. But, you know, he ended up just kind of standing there. And he said, and he turned around to the, I don't know, the, Anyway, there's some guy that walks around and they sign the clipboard that the game's over. And he looked at the coach, he goes, this game is over and you just lost. He yeah. signed it over, had it signed. And, he, and the guy's like, I'm going to take you to the commissioner. That's just like, you go. I'm so proud of him. Yeah. But I did not intervene. It was tempting. I wanted to go in in there and save him. I wanted to give that guy yeah. a piece of my mind. I'm like, yeah. no. I need to shut up and stick to this chair. You know what the best thing is about that? You got to see your efforts raising him in action. Yeah, right. I did. That was the end product of all those years of guiding them and mentoring them and coaching right. them, protecting them, and right. Yeah. That was awesome. And I mean, there are certain skills I didn't learn till later, but I want everyone listening to know that it's never too late to use some of the skills we're talking about now. I don't care if you have a child that is 44 years old, you can start to allowing them to feel heard, to ask more questions, to allow more periods of silence and any of the other parenting tips for raising mentally healthy kids that I throw out there all the time. It is never too late. You can start when they are babies like you did asking questions or you can start when, you know, you have a son about to retire. It is never too late. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's, it's so, you know, this unbelievably rewarding and both of my children individually without knowing the other one was doing it, have come to me and thanked me from the bottom of their heart for how we raised them because now they're getting older, right? And they're starting to see the results of other people raising other kids. And they've come back to me and gone, you know, my, you know, dad, thank you. And so I want to share something with you that um, the night after my son killed himself, and of course, 
we're we're feeling like the worst parents on the planet Earth. You know, we're we're horrible. So I called. We called our son last because he stayed up the latest. We had to call our parents. They're older. They went to bed sooner. So I called Richard, and I told him what happened. And then he just goes into this. I don't know where he got this as a 22-year-old. And he goes, I lived in the same house. I grew up in that house. I love my neighborhood. I love you all. You all were great parents. And he just goes on. And I mean, of all the things I needed to hear at that moment, and from the person that was the most important to me in the world, it's who I heard it from. Yeah, that's gold. Absolutely. How does a how does a twenty two year old even know to say that? And I love the way when I was grieving, and I remember a friend was over, and he said something, and I started to cry, and the friend came over, oh, don't cry, and Richard went up to the friend, and said, no, let her cry, yeah. it's okay, and go. then came out and gave me a hug and said, you cry, you want long. Yeah. How did he know that to yeah. do that? is like a 22-year-old. I'm still amazed. And that's what kind of reinforced that, all right, I I am not as horrible. It it took me a while to get to a place where I was hyper-focusing on the 5% of parenting I did imperfectly, ignoring the 95% that I did right. So so many of us do that, though. We don't appreciate the good parts that we do and we focus all on our mistakes and and we start to get real caught into that there no one gives you a manual for that it's true you know they they give you this baby and they tell you to leave the hospital and i remember when i left the hospital going they're really just gonna let me go home with this baby yeah Yeah. i can't believe it yeah and i felt the exact same way Right. I mean, and there were many times where I didn't exactly know what to do, but I also think being vulnerable with your kids is really important. And I don't mean vulnerable to the part where you treat them like a therapist or you say, we're going to lose the house or, you know, but more like I've got a presentation at work and I'm really anxious. Can you just give me a random hug? (laughs) You know, just little things of like opening up and letting them know you're human and then giving them the opportunity to give you advice. Yeah. Well, it's buy-in. It's buy-in, okay? No parent on the face of this planet is ever going to live a balanced life. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But what happens is if you don't live a balanced life and you don't share with your children and or your spouse, what's happening, you build resentment. If you sit with them and you share with them what's going on and what you're doing to help support the family, they then appreciate versus resent what your imbalance is, okay? Right, and that it's makes a big, sense. It's a big deal and it gives them an opportunity. So. The interview we just did before you and I came on, uh, or actually two interviews ago, pardon me. The first interview I did this morning was with a lady whose 
mom and dad had a janitorial service and the janitorial service had one account, it's commercial janitorial service, had one account. The, the account was canceled by the corporation and they literally went from a comfortable life to zero income, zero. And mom took it upon herself to sit the kids down when she was a child, sit the kids down and explain to them what was going on and to share with them what her solution was, which was she was going to start the very next day. This is on a Sunday. She was going to start the very next day that Monday morning. She was going to start a house cleaning business, which to this day she owns and has hundreds of homes that she cleans every week with her employees. She has a full company now, okay? And this, this person that I interviewed said, look, when my mom sat with us and said that, it rocked my world, but it also gave me an opportunity to be actively involved in watching her pivot, in watching her deal with it, in watching her be flexible, in watching her take her frustration and turn it into motivation. And this, this lady that I interviewed is now unbelievably successful. And at the end of the interview, I said, you know, you may want to go give mama a hug. And she's like, I'm hugging both of them, right? Mom and dad. But it was one of those things where when we told her life story, we got to the end of it. And, and she's like, oh, my goodness. I hadn't even thought about it that way. But it really was and in an unbelievable opportunity for her and her siblings to learn about life. Right. And to learn about business, right? And they- But to, well, and you're also the triggering or activating them to with their own skills of yeah. thinking what they would do. Yeah. You know, their critical thinking skills. So you're yeah. activating critical thinking skills, which is how you build resilience and coping strategies in your Absolutely. children. Absolutely. And the best way to do that is to ask questions. Right. Uh, yeah. So we're clear. And, <laughs> and dude, I never lecture. I never give unsolicited advice. And my children were told that if I give unsolicited advice, they needed to say, mom that is unsolicited advice and i would shut up and i kept that promise that's awesome you did it right <laughs> you did it right i'm so proud of you i'm so proud of you and i'm so honored that we had this time together if people if people want to reach you they can they can look up the the emotionally naked blog right Right. Uh, and they can look up Ann Moss Rogers speaker or Ann Moss uh, speaker. Uh, okay. I do a lot of um, I do a lot of webinars. Um, I do a lot of um, training and public speaking to parents, I do a lot of universities, uh, schools where I do the parents, the teachers and the students, because I think you we need that. Will you send me a link? Absolutely. Yes. I and will. I'll put that in your description so that okay. people can, can reach out to you. That would be great. Ann Moss, thank you so much. I, I thank I you cannot, for having me. I cannot thank you enough. I feel so honored that we had this time together and we had an opportunity to put your story on our podcast. Well, same here, especially since you had hundreds of submissions and I got lucky enough to get on. <laughs> I'm so excited. Thank you so much. 
All right. Thank you too, Mike. I appreciate you. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.